0: You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is Life at Its Best, Episode 2 with Walter Feit. Our next lecture is called Your Health, Your Choice. And because that's really what we're going to talk about. We have many choices that we can make and these affect what we will be like, what the probability of diseases will be. All of these parameters. Now we are actually fearfully and wonderfully made. And it is surprising that the human being can take so much abuse and still survive. And uh, the fact that everything is still so normal is really very surprising. What are the risk factors affecting our health? Well there are some things that you can change and some things that you cannot change. For example, if, uh, if the environment gets to be very polluted, you can't very well jump off the planet. You're sort of restricted to this place. But there are other things, again, which you can avoid, which I like to call monsters in our lifestyles. Smog blights babies in the womb. Well, there's nothing other than you can do about that except stop breathing, And uh, then there are other things that we do to ourselves, like we take stimulants, we have stressful lives. People wake up in the morning, they feel half dead, they need a stimulant. So one grabs for a cup of coffee or a cup of tea or a cola drink or a cigarette or any one of those just to get going. And uh, you get hooked to these stimulants. And they increase your state of arousal. Then when you come home and you want to go to bed and you've had these all day long, then you need a depressant, something to calm you down. So you come home and you have a drink. Some people have alcohol or spirits. Some go for narcotics. Some are hooked on medication. Some take uh, aspirins or some just smoke pots, cannabis, marijuana, whatever. And then you can even have some people that try to opt out by using hallucinogens, LSD, ecstasy, any one of those, and if you're really down and out, you go for the inhalants. All of these have their problems. Let's first look at alcohol, generally speaking. If you want to have active natural killer cells, that's a type of immune cell that gobbles up uh, aberrant cells, like cancer cells, for example, then it's good that you should actually have no alcohol. A bout of heavy drinking influenced the ability of natural killer cells to destroy destroy cancerous cells, that's been shown. And very small amounts of alcohol can also prevent these cells from actually uh, changing or undergoing attacks or taking part in your immune capacity. So even small amounts of alcohol reduce your immunocapacity. Cirrhosis is not something that only comes from heavy drinking. Women particularly can be prone to cirrhosis of the liver even in very small even if small quantities are consumed. Here for example is a normal level here is a cirrhotic liver notice the fat deposition. Children for example many can be born with what we call uh, fetal alcohol syndrome. Typical would be a small head circumference, low nasal bridge, eye folds, short little nose, uh, small mid-face, thin upper lip. And not all of these features present at the same time necessarily, but typically that would be fetal alcohol syndrome. You know, it, it's it's very strange that women who drink excessively while pre- pregnant have a 30 to 45% chance of having a child Affected, but notice that just two mixed drinks per day seems to be the level at which damage occurs. So even a small amount of alcohol is detrimental to development. It's detrimental to your immune capacity. Everybody knows that cigarettes are bad for you. And uh, typically, cigarettes smoke per day and the incidence of cancer is very strongly correlated. Here, for example, if you've never smoked in your life, what's your probability of reaching the right old age, let's say of 85. If you've never smoked in your life, you go up to the red graph and your probability is around about there, 35%. If you have smoked uh, 25 cigarettes or more a day, the probability of getting there is less than 10%. It's quite a difference. What about getting to 70? probability is actually very good if you've never smoked 80% if you've never smoked and the probability is only 40% if you smoke 25. So any reduction in smoking is already an improvement but no smoking banning would be the very best. If you look at world cancer rates you'll see that Scotland Hong Kong Iceland United States Denmark uh, are the ones way at the top there, and it seems like the, some of the industrialized countries are not doing too badly today. There's a slight shift towards the non-industrialized cancers, uh, countries. Lung cancer in the United States, males started smoking since the 1950s quite heavily, and then it increased rapidly to the 90s. Women lagged behind in this social. Uh, adventure and only started smoking in 1965. Uh, probably because women are more intelligent than men. Isn't that right? It must be, right? But uh, it seems as if they are catching up eventually, and today there's actually a shift around. So given time, men get more intelligent. I don't know exactly how that works. Obviously... That's a pretty bad tumor over there. You don't want a lung that looks like that, or this is a typical smoker's lung compared to a smog-filled lung of a non-smoker, and uh, these are pretty bad. Here's an experiment that was done by a colleague of mine. We, at our university, were quite interested in lifestyle diseases, and this man over here, Professor Moritz, he did a lot of research. He's world-renowned for his nicotine research. And he did some fascinating studies on rats. And uh, here you see metabolic rates, for example. Let's just look at this one. Glucose, burning glucose. Normally, a little rat would have that burning capacity, uh, micromoles per gram per hour burning glucose. But if he gave them nicotine, that capacity doubled. If he withdrew the nicotine, then it went way, way low. Now, that's an interesting point. You see, women, for example, are very attracted to this. When they smoke, they naturally burn more energy, and therefore they tend to stay thinner. When they give up smoking, that capacity drops to less than half, and they tend to get fat. That's why women don't like to give up smoking, because they get fat. Whereas normally that would be your level somewhere between the two. So if you give it up long enough, your metabolism would increase again. So the only thing you can do then is remain active and fit to prevent this from happening. But here's something very interesting that he found. If he took a pregnant rat and he gave the mother nicotine, that's the equivalent of simulating a mother that smokes during pregnancy. And uh, then the pups were born, and he keeps on feeding her with the nicotine, uh, simulating someone smoking a milligram per kilogram body mass, and gives it up to day 21. That means the little ones are still getting the nicotine in the mother's milk. And this is what happens to the baby's lungs. This one over here is one that receives nicotine, this purple one and this is one that doesn't. These are the babies. So the babies never actually directly get nicotine, they just get it indirectly from the mother. And you'll see that when they are born, the lungs are pretty much the same, but as they develop the lungs, so the alveoli volume gets large compared to one where the mother did not get any nicotine. The alveoli volume actually gets small. Now that's important. So, The babies from a mother that smokes, in brackets, would have large air sacs. And the babies from a mother that does not smoke would have small air sacs. Not only that, if we look at the number of alveoli, we have the same thing. Here is a mother, the babies of a mother that never smoked, and you'll see that the number of alveoli increases dramatically with development where it also increases in the group where the mother did smoke not as greatly. So there's a great difference in the number of alveoli at day 42 of development. So what does that mean? Simply this, that if a mother smokes, her offspring is likely to have large little air sacs in the lung and few. Whereas if the mother did not smoke, the air sacs would be small and many. Now what is preferable? A small one has a large surface area for the exchange of oxygen relative to volume. So if you have lots of small ones, that's the way you would want it to be. And uh, here is the nicotine alveoli of of a little baby that did not smoke. Notice the large alveoli and the little holes in it. It actually tears and the lung actually bleeds internally. This is the baby that never, ever smoked, it just got inherited from the mother. And here's one where the mother did not smoke, and you'll see nice tiny little alveoli, that's just the size measure over there, smooth, no holes in it, absolutely perfect under the electron microscope. So very nice lung development. And then he did something interesting. He took the whole lung, and he put it in an acid, and he dissolved all the tissue away, until only the elastic tissue was left. And here was the lung of a control rat. In other words, once all the tissue had dissolved, that's what left. That's the elastic tissue. It looks like a a sponge. If you took the same age one from a mother that had, in inverted commas, smoked, that's what it looked like. Wow. So, basically, that is a lung of someone who has emphysema. That lung is so useless. The air sacs are large and floppy and uh, the elasticity of the lung is poor. <gasps> so some people who have children do this to their kids. I believe my wife is one of them. She has the worst lungs under the sun. You go to, the, to the, that test where you blow to see what your, the force of your lung is and your capacity. She blows it that far. My mother was a heavy smoker while she was pregnant, and my wife just inherited these pathetic lungs. Me, I blow that thing into the middle of next week. My mother never smoked, even though I smoked when I was stupid and young. Uh, it makes a big difference. Your choice, you see, does not only affect you, it can affect your offspring. And secondhand smoke is just as bad. Then there's something else about certain plants. We've looked at Secondary plant compounds, phytochemicals that are healthy. Now, they are phytochemicals that are harmful in certain plants. And these harmful secondary compounds can cause various diseases. Now, why do plants have them? They say these plant compounds are for toxic defense. They are digestibility-reducing defense, and they, some of them are positive, like anticarcinogens, Bad ones are called alkaloids. Some are pyrethrins. You can use them as insecticides, for example, rotinoids, uh, cyanogenic glycosides, tannin, for example, phenolic resins, caffeoles, caffeine, theophylline substances that you find in tea, for example, theobromine, a substance that you find in cocoa, nicotine, a substance that you find in tobacco plants, for example. Those are negative compounds that you want to avoid. Now, different plants have different compounds. All plants vary in the substances within them. And so the whole animal kingdom is spread over the plant kingdom. So certain animals will eat certain foods and no other foods. So, for example, the tobacco hornworm is a worm that feeds on tobacco plants. And it has an enzyme which neutralizes nicotine. So that worm can eat that plant from morning till night and the nicotine is neutralized and excreted as though it weren't even there. But it's also attracted to the nicotine. It's its target and it goes and it eats it. The koala bear is attracted to eucalyptus oils. And the eucalyptus oils are eaten and attracts the animal And that's its diet. It sticks to that diet. Another animal comes along, tastes eucalyptus oil and goes, doesn't eat it. And so the koala bear has assured that that's its diet. So the animal kingdom is spread over the entire plant kingdom in the world. Now, it's very interesting that an ungulate, for example, the elant, which is the largest ungulate in the world, that goes along and it will eat acacia leaves. And uh, the same happens as would happen in tea or in coffee. And we'll talk about that as we go along. Here's the coffee bean that contains caffeoles and it contains caffeine. Caffeine and theobromide, the one that you find in cocoa products, are very, very similar. Fatty acid concentration gets increased when you consume these. Blood pressure increases, stomach acid. Adrenaline, noradrenaline levels start increasing. Gives you a fight and flight mechanism, a stress reaction. Digestion and absorption time is increased. Uh, Caffeine is toxic. It interferes with muscle action. It's an enzyme suppressant. It's a carcinogen. 500 grams of tea Contains enough caffeine to kill 1,000 mice. That's just one packet of tea. And it's mutagenic. For example, tetrogenicity, more than the normal number of, of fingers, uh, hair lip, and cleft palate. If you feed rats caffeine, then they develop tetrogenicity, more than the normal amount of number of digits. Or they develop hair lips, cleft palate, and what they also develop is X encephaly There's a higher incidence of X encephaly the brain, developing outside the body. And that's not too uncommon in the world today either. These are the substances that you find in tea, coffee, and cocoa. Theophylline you find in tea, theobromine you find in cocoa products, and caffeine you find in tea and in coffee. Now, these substances would normally prevent animals, other than those that are adapted for that particular compound, to stay away from those plants. And uh, that is a way in which the animals are spread over over the plant kingdom. Now, what happens when an animal consumes something that it's not geared for? Well, then it has all these negative reactions. So what happens when, for example, you take caffeine into your system? The first thing that happens, besides all those negative effects, is that the caffeine causes your adrenal gland to release hormones. Two of them, adrenaline and cortisone. And adrenaline is the fight-and-flight mechanism, hormone. So you are geared to defend yourselves or to run like blazes, one of those two, right? The cortisone, on the other hand, is there to prevent inflammation in case of damage. And it is also there to make sure you have enough energy to do the fighting and the running. So what happens is the cortisone affects the liver and the liver releases huge amounts of glycogen into the bloodstream. (laughs) And that's the same as taking a huge glass of sugar water. So you have all this sugar suddenly coming into the bloodstream, ready for the action, the stress reaction that you're going to take part in now. But why do people drink coffee? To go for a heavy run or to beat someone up, yes or no? No, just to wake up. And where do they sit while they're doing it? At their desk at the computer. So what happens? All of a sudden you drink your coffee and you get a glucose surge. That means you wake up. And in actual fact, you're getting ready to run or defend yourself or beat someone up. But you don't. You just continue with the computer. So now what's your body going to do? It's going to say, whoa, I have an emergency here. So it has to react to this glucose surge so it releases insulin. And down come your glucose levels. And then all of a sudden you're hypoglycemic like we discussed just now. That means you're feeling lethargic, tired, stressed. What's the solution to the problem? I need another cup of coffee. So you get another cup of coffee, and you go through the same process over and over and over again, and instead of doing what you're telling your body is happening to you, you are shunting all of this into a totally different direction. It's the worst thing you could do with your body. Tea. Now, here's a typical tea plantation. Look how nice and square it is. And there is my example of this nice animal, the eelant. Now, the animal that you see on the screen there does not eat tea. It eats acacia leaves. Now, the eland is attracted to acacia leaves. And the acacia leaves have tannin in them. Now, as the animal eats the acacia tree the tree actually protects itself against overgrazing. So what happens? As the leaves are broken, they release a pheromone, and the pheromone warns the tree and the rest of the trees around something's breaking the leaves. It's a fascinating system. And the trees respond by increasing the levels of tannins in all the leaves. And then at a particular point, the airline will bite and The leaf is astringent. And so it will leave the tree and go somewhere else. It won't eat the tree next door because that one's been warned as well and also is impalatable. So it'll walk about 50 meters and then it'll start grazing again. And then the same happens. And that's why the animals graze and walk and graze and walk and graze and walk. It's a marvelous system. Evolutionists say it developed by evolution. I believe it's designed. I believe God put it into the tree to prevent the elan from... What prevents this animal from just stripping the whole tree? What prevents it? Nothing. Here's a mechanism that tells it, enough for you, off you go, go and eat elsewhere. Now, there's something else that's interesting. A tree wants to grow. And so the young leaves and the buds are protected as well by putting higher levels of these noxious compounds in the young leaves. We call it the ephemeral tissue, into the young leaves and buds. And then the animals come and eat, and they eat the older leaves rather than the young ones, because the young ones are impalpable to them. And that way, the tree can actually grow, even though it is being grazed upon. That makes sense, doesn't it? Imagine if animals came along and only ate the young growth. The tree would never be able to grow. No plant would grow. That would be the end of it. So, nature is designed so that there is no overgrazing and that plants can grow even though they are a food source for animals. It's actually a magnificent system. So now, what have we established? When these levels are high, they are deterrents to animals. They cause digestive problems. They cause... uh, repression of enzymes and, and functions such as that. So now let's see what happens when you go to gather tea. Notice that these plantations are square on top and on the sides. They are square. How did that happen? See, what they do is they go and they have found out that it's not good to cut the, the leaves. The best is to take a long stick and to walk and to trim them. So they go, and they cut them this way. They trim them down to these nice square. That's how they prune them. What does that simulate? If you're breaking the leaves like this. What does that simulate? Yes, that's right. It simulates an animal eating the plants. What would be the natural reaction to the plants after this? to raise the level of compounds that act as deterrents. And when the young leaves then come out after that process, they will have higher levels of deterrents than in a plant that had not been treated in this way. Does that make sense? And then the pickers go out, and for the very best of teas, what do they collect? Uh, The two top leaves and the bud. Those have the highest levels of these noxious compounds in them that any self-respecting animal would avoid, but not man. Man picks them, and then what does he do with them? Well, he dries the leaf, and that he calls green tea. But that's not good enough for most people, so what they do is they take all these leaves. By the way, how does he dry them? By cutting down the forest, making huge amounts of smoke and drying it that way. Then he takes this tea, and he puts it into fermentation vats, and he adds bacteria, and then he ferments them. Now, bacteria have to live. What do they live on? They live on everything that is edible in that leaf. And they ferment it away until it's all gone, and and what remains in that leaf? Only that which is non-usable. So now, when you take that and you dry it again, what do you have then? Then you have high concentrations of toxins which no self-respecting animal would even get near to. It would be astringent and it would be bitter and it would be a taste and a metabolic deterrent. And what do we do with it? We make a solution and we pour it into a cup and then we say, Drink it. Now do a baby test and give a cup of black tea to a little baby and watch its face. It'll take a sip and it'll go (laughs) how? And spit it out, right? What do we do? Obviously the thing is impalatable. It's as bitter as gall. It's full of toxins. We have to make it palatable. So what do we add? Sugar, because it's bitter. Now we add the sugar to take away the bitter. We are the stupidest animal on the planet, no doubt. You add the sugar, and then it's still astringent, so what do you add to prevent that, to make it smoother? You add cream, and then you can actually get this noxious compound down. And it's still so wickedly bad that you have to make a culture out of it. So you put it in a neat little cup and you raise the finger and you teach everyone that you have to drink it like this. And then you must say, ah, afterwards. And when you've learned that, you've become a tea drinker, right? And there is no animal as moronic on the face of the earth. No other animal would do that except man. So tea and coffee is bad, bad news. So I have good news for you. There are many, many plants out there that have very good phytochemicals in them, and herb teas are not made from two leaves and a bud. How do they make herb teas? They take the whole plant, and they use the whole plant for herb teas. So that is the best way to go about it. And then I have another piece of good news for you. There are some herb teas on the market which tastes just as bad as black tea. So you don't even have to give up anything. You just switch to a horrible herb tea, and then your problem is solved. And you add whatever you wanted to make it palatable. But the good news is there are herb teas that are actually palatable. So do yourselves a favor and a flavor. Switch to herb teas and cut out the ones with the alkaloids. Sources of caffeine, for example, Uh, ground beans will give you 66 to 80 milligrams in a two-cup drink. Filter drip will give you 110 to 180. So those are your typical coffees. Decaf will give you very little, but decaf contains the extractant, which is equally harmful because these are normally organic compounds with which they dissolve the caffeine out so you're you're losing the caffeine but you're gaining the the extractant teas as you see are also quite rich in caffeines and then your cola drinks also have caffeine so coke has a double whammy 12 teaspoons of sugar plus it has caffeine it gives you a double whammy so coke actually should never be consumed by any human being. Uh, In fact, that company, well, what's the name of the product? Coke. Why? Because it's the extract of what? Cocaine plants. And uh, these days they have to extract the drug, but it makes it addictive, or it used to in the past probably, and now they just add caffeine to solve that problem because that will make it also addictive because they'll make you constantly hypoglycemic and on you go. It makes it addictive. Chocolate products are bad, bad news. Look at all the the products and the theobromines you get out of those. Cold remedies, weight control things, diuretics, they put these compounds into everything. For example, a simple slab of Cadbury milk chocolate, one ounce, will contain 44 milligrams of theobromine. Chocolate syrup, two teaspoons, 89 milligrams. Chocolate flavor, mixed milk, 120 milligrams. You give it to our kids all the time. I don't understand why we do that. These days you can buy soy milks that have got chocolate and cocoa products in them. Well, why don't they make one with carrot? Why do they have to make it with, with, uh, with caffeine and theobromine products? I wouldn't drink it. I'd just watch people drink it. Now, that's one thing we can avoid. Remember this lecture is called Your Health, Your Choice. It is your choice whether you want to drink cocoa products, whether you want to drink uh, teas and coffees, when you could drink herb teas, and you could replace your cocoa products with uh, carob products, and retrain your palate, and you don't really have to give up anything. You just switch to something better. There's something else that we do. Fats and cardiovascular diseases. The type of fats we consume are very important in terms of how we live and how we die. For example, amongst men, the big killer is heart disease. And about 27% of men will die eventually of heart disease. In women, the situation is better, or so they might think. Only 18%. of Women are less likely... To die from a heart disease. But here's the problem. Here's a New Scientist article Surprise, the truth about women's hearts. If a woman gets a heart attack, she's 72% more likely to die from it than a man. 72% more likely to die from it than a man. Why? Well, the reason is that a woman has these estrogen hormones. And estrogen is what's going to cause the problem. When a woman gets a heart attack, then the heart goes into fibrillation, but not only the heart, the big vessels coming out of the heart, the vessels themselves go into fibrillation. And that's what will give them a far greater risk of dying. A man not having those estrogen levels, the heart goes into fibrillation. If they can shock it back into reality, that's so fine. But at least the vessels don't fibrillate. And if your vessels fibrillate, well then the blood doesn't go through that either. You cut off the oxygen to the brain and then you die. So a woman is more likely to die from a heart attack than a man. If you take a typical statistics in the States, for example, then you'll see almost uh, a quarter of the population, I mean, that's horrendous, uh, have some form of cardiovascular disease, like high blood pressure, 50 million, coronary heart disease, 12 million, myocardial infarct, 7 million, angina, 6.2 million, stroke, 4.4 million, rheumatic fever and heart disease, 1.8 million. That's the American Heart Association. That's pretty horrendous. And cholesterol levels are very, very high, million American adults have high cholesterol levels. Even young kids, 19 years old, have cholesterol levels of 165 milligrams per deciliter. There's only one nation that keeps up with them, and that's Finland. No other nation. And that's the reason why. That's the diet. That's a very high cholesterol-forming diet. Dairy products are very cholesterogenic. Eggs... Meat products, those are the ones. Seafoods are relatively high too. And uh, roe, for example, 300. Salmon is pretty high. Uh, Shrimp, all of these products, especially down here in your state, very high cholesterol diets that we see over there. Dairy, one of the very high cholesterol foods. We'll deal with that later. Whereas high-fat foods in the plant kingdom like uh, avocados, coconuts, they are not cholesterogenic. There is a notion that they will cause high cholesterol, but they don't. They don't form high, cause high cholesterol at all because the protein associated with it is plant protein. It actually lowers cholesterol. And the avocado, the oil in it is a monounsaturated oil and it lowers your cholesterol level. So no high cholesterol, from those products. Uh, Here is a typical way in which clotting and plaque formation forms. This is what you want. You want a nice squeaky clean blood vessel without any of these compounds. People today say that cholesterol is not really the problem. In actual fact, they're right. Cholesterol is not the problem per se. It's the way in which the cholesterol is distributed that's the problem. Here's the Framingham Heart Study which clearly shows that the more cholesterol, the higher the risk of cardiovascular disease. So yes, the risk is higher. But how the cholesterol is distributed plays a very, very important role. If you have cholesterol clogging your arteries, then the arteries' uh, lumen becomes smaller, and then you have a greater risk of a disease. Typical plaque formation Notice how small the lumen has become. This is a person who has died of a heart attack and you can see the clogging of the arteries over there. So a plaque is this mass of fat and cholesterol. Arteriosclerosis is hardening of the artery. Often calcium deposits come in there because you have such high acid diets that the calcium even deposits in the blood vessels. Then you can get clots and they can start floating around and and uh, cause strokes and heart attacks and all kinds of problems like that. And by the way, if you're an African-American, then you have twice the probability of getting these diseases than if you are a uh, European white stock. That's just the luck of the draw. It just happens to be so. And I think the reason is that the population that is derived from from black Africans in Africa has had a shorter time to adjust to high-fat diets than the Western, typical European society. So that's just something we have inherited over time, a greater capacity to deal with a bad diet than the, the poor black people have that have had a shorter history of such diets. Now here's something that's very fascinating. The American Heart Society started warning against saturated fats and said they were the ones that caused heart disease. And by the 1970s, this started taking effect. And the average American started changing his diet, taking more polyunsaturated fats and less saturated fats. Is that correct? And they told everyone to switch from what to what? From butter to margarine. That's right. And lo and behold, it worked like a bomb. Here's the American figure. And you can see that heart attacks dropped dramatically between 1970 and 1993 when this advertising campaign made the people aware that they had to change their diets. In the UK, you had exactly the same thing. They were a little bit slower in taking off. But their heart attack rates also came down. The Japanese in general... Didn't have that problem to begin with in those years. Didn't have the problem. So, obviously, the problem was the saturated fats. And so, all over the world, advertising campaigns started saying, switch to polyunsaturated fats and prevent heart disease. That was great. But what about fats and cancer? Same time period. While down came heart attacks... In the same time period, up went cancer. Breast cancer soared. Prostate cancer soared. Now, what was the problem? What was the problem? World all cancer cancer rates. Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Luxembourg, Denmark, Scotland, Hungary, England, Wales, all the high-fat-consuming nations were the ones that showed the high cancer rates. And so in the 80s... They started doing experiments and found that your diet is affected by what you eat and particularly your fat intake. So the more fat consumed by a nation, the higher the risk of cancer. The Netherlands, for example, was way up there. Denmark, UK, New Zealand, Canada, Switzerland, US, those are the top of the hit parade countries, high fat-consuming nations. And they clearly showed That if you fed a rat a carcinogen, that's something that produces cancer, and you feed it a high-fat diet, then it has more cancer than if you feed it a low-fat diet. In fact, twice as much cancer. So obviously, fat caused the cancer. And the types of cancer, particularly, were breast cancer, colon cancer, uh, rectal cancer, prostate cancer, And uh, pancreas cancer. Those were the cancers that were induced by fat products. World breast cancer and prostate cancer. Look at the prostate cancer. Switzerland and Norway are top of the hit parade. I'll be dealing with that when we're dealing with dairy products. Breast cancer, England and Wales, Denmark, Scotland, Ireland, and uh, those countries, New Zealand, all the heavy animal fat nations were the ones that were involved there. Colorectal cancer, the same sort of picture. New Zealand at the top. Hungary, Denmark, those are the top cancer countries in the world. So what you eat affects your health. Now in the next session, we will be looking at what it means to change the fat in your diet. Right, we've been looking at fat in the diet And fat in the diet we saw in our previous session is directly correlated with disease, either cardiovascular disease or cancer. Now we're going to look at messing with fat, changing the structure of a fat. What does it mean? Now here's a normal saturated fat. Notice that there are no unsaturated bonds over there. Here's an unsaturated fat. There's a double bond there, a double bond, and a double bond. So this is a polyunsaturated fat. Wherever there is a double bond, the molecule makes a kink like that, like a V, okay? And so the molecule, because it has these kinks, is an open molecule. It's sort of open. And that means oxygen can get in very readily. So this fat over here tends to oxidize quite readily. And when it oxidizes, it forms free radicals. So when you extract a fat, it starts oxidizing. And the more unsaturated it is, the more it forms free radicals. For example, the polyunsaturated fat is unstable, and it causes free radicals over time. So you need a balance between polyunsaturates and antioxidants. And the natural antioxidants that you find in plants are vitamin A, vitamin C, vitamin E. And that vitamin E is built right into the seed where the oils are. So in a seed, the oil in a sunflower seed, the oil is present, packed with antioxidants, and that oil remains stable. As soon as you extract that oil, then you expose it to air, and you have to increase the amount of vitamin E dramatically 200 times before it will stop oxidizing. And that doesn't happen. So they extract the oil, and then it forms these free radicals. And it forms all these compounds, peroxides, aldehydes, ketones, all these bad fellows. Now, when they extract the oil... To get enough oil out of the seed, they heat it as well. So for example, when you heat a saturated and a polyunsaturated fat, and you heat it to 170 degrees for two hours, then it causes liver ailments when you feed it to an animal. That's centigrade. That's what, about double it for Fahrenheit. All fats heated to 180, that's about 360 degrees Fahrenheit, for two hours or more will produce serious liver ailments, and a triunsaturated fat will undergo auto- oxidation ten thousand times faster than a monounsaturated fatty acid. So now here's the problem: when you extract that oil out of the seed under heat, normally they heat it to up to two hundred degrees centigrade. That's four hundred Fahrenheit. And they do that for two hours. So by the time you buy it, that oil would already cause serious liver ailments to a rat. Now what do you do with the oil when you buy it? You cook with it. So you heat it. To what heat do you heat it? Very high. If you have a plate on your stove that's red, That means it's 600 degrees because you actually see the light. You're putting your pan on there and you're heating that and you're cooking whatever you're cooking in there. You are just creating free radicals like crazy. Now, what about the corner fast food store? That has huge vats with boiling oil and they put the french fries in there and they do their thing. How long does that oil stay heated? Wow, you are actually buying carcinogens. Uh, could I have a packet of carcinogens, please? Large or small, sir? Well, is there a difference in the price? Yes, the more carcinogen you buy, sir, the more expensive it gets. Oh, good. Can I have some, please? Isn't that what we do? All right. So, this is bad, bad news. Notice that a triunsaturated fat oxidizes 10,000 times faster than a monounsaturated fat. Now, we know that the saturated fat is not really good. And, in fact, animal-saturated fat is the very worst of all. Do you know why? Because it has no antioxidants. Zero. None. So when you take an animal fat and you fry in that, it oxidizes quickly because there are no antioxidants in it. If you take a plant fat, it at least has antioxidants in it. Now, which fat would therefore be the very best fat to take? A tri, or a mono, or a saturated? Which one? Notice the mono will undergo oxidation 10,000 times slower than a tri. So which is the best fat to take if you're going to use an extracted fat? Mono, no doubt. Mono will be the best one to use. How would you like to have it extracted? Heat extracted or cold pressed? Cold pressed. See, it's all very logical. And you can choose. You can go to the store and you can choose carcinogen or polyunsaturated or monounsaturated heat extracted or monounsaturated cold pressed. It's your choice. Of course it affects your pocket, but it also affects your health. Which one would you buy? Monounsaturated cold-pressed. Which one do you think is the best one on the market? Olive oil. Why? Olive oil has stood the test of time. Canola oil is also a monounsaturated fat, largely, but it's rapeseed and it has other components in it which might not be so hot and it is a far stickier oil, generally speaking. So the one that one, if one is going to use it would be mono olive oil. And you can see that that is a saturated, polyunsaturated mono. It takes the longest before it starts oxidizing. In fact, it only really starts oxidizing after being heated for about an hour or two hours. So if you take a cold press and you drip that over some potatoes and you pop it in and mix it all up and put it into the oven and you bake that at uh, 200 degrees centigrade, that's what, 380, 400 Fahrenheit, and you bake it at that for an hour, you have golden brown chips and you have far fewer carcinogens than when you, if you used uh, sunflower seed oil. So make your fries like that. You don't have to give them up. Don't eat them as often, but when you make them, make them like that. Here's a typical uh, polyunsaturated ones, linoleic and linolenic acid. Now, these are essential fatty acids. That means it is essential that we get them in the diet. We need them. We cannot live without them. We have to have them, and we can only get them from the diet. Now, what's the best way to get them? Extract it or in the whole food? Absolutely, that's the best way to get them. Hydrogenated margarines and oils are another problem that we're facing today. U.S. News report, it is a violation of the law to make any claim that polyunsaturates can prevent or treat heart disease. Very interesting. What's happening here? Oil in margarines will be soya, maize, sunflower, olive, coconut, palm oil. There will be emulsifiers, preservatives, colorings, flavorings, Then you go through a process of uh, removing the gums, neutralization with caustic soda, bleaching, filterizing, and then a process called hydrogenation. Heat and a catalyst and hydrogen. It's filtered, neutralized, bleached, deodorized, etc., and then they make the margarine. All right. Now, oil is a liquid. Plant oils are liquids, and polyunsaturates are liquids more than saturates so now normally all oils naturally are in a form that we call the cis form which means if you have your double bond the two sides of the chemical arms are on the same side of the double bond now when you change this fat and you hydrogenate it you switch the one arm round So then you have what we call a transform. Now, they are on opposite sides. I always explain it to my students. It's like giving someone a hug. If the two arms are on the same side, you can give them a hug. But It's very hard to give someone a hug when you look like this. (laughs) It's very hard. So this form is the only form that our body recognizes. We have enzymes for this form, but we don't have enzymes for that form. Now, why do they change the form from this form to that form? The answer is this. That form is a liquid. The cis form is a liquid, and the trans form happens to be a solid. And they know that you do not want to pour your margarine over your bread. You want to smear your margarine over your bread. Does that make sense? And there's one other thing. When it is in this form, in the trans form, the bacteria don't have the enzymes to recognize it either. Aha. Uh-huh. Which is good for the industry. That means that fat will not go rancid. But you know what? The younger generation doesn't know what rancid is. They don't know. This has gone rancid. When last have you heard that? It doesn't exist anymore. Why not? It doesn't go rancid. Why doesn't it go rancid? Because the bacteria don't want it anymore. Why don't they want it anymore? Because they can't digest it anymore. Good news, they have the same enzymes to digest it that you have. That means you can't digest it either anymore. So what is a margarine? Really, if it's full of trans fats, it's a foreign substance. I call it shoe polish, you see? He already answered. I call it shoe polish. It's good for shoes. But for human consumption, no. So now you have a fat in you that you do not recognize. What do you do with it? What are you going to do with it? You're going to store it where you won't ever use it. Don't you store the things you don't use in the upper cupboards? Right? So you will store it under the skin, as far away from the heat source in the body as possible. And then it starts getting into the connective tissue, and it makes bumps. And you look at it and you say, ooh, I've got cellulites. And you start training like crazy, but you know that stuff just doesn't go away. Have you noticed that? Cellulite just won't go away. The only way to get rid of it is to stop eating this plastic, which is trans fat, and exercise, and eventually it'll go out through the skin. Because your skin is oily, the cells burst, and the fat gets released that way and that solves your problem. So trans fats are not a food. They are not fit for human consumption. They were never meant to be a food. They are good for the industry. And I have found out over the years that whatever is good for industry is normally bad for you. Isn't that so? All right, now, unfortunately, they found out that if they add a certain percentage to normal oil, so it still stays liquid, the bacteria don't like it as much either. So when you buy oils, sunflower seed oils, liquid, read on the label, and it says sometimes partially hydrogenated. Have you read that before on the label? That means partially unfit for human consumption next time you read it, okay? And... Uh, So don't use it. If you're going to use a margarine, use one that contains no trans fats, only natural oils, and uses something else to make it thick, like cornstarch or something like that they normally use. You can buy margarines like that, but generally speaking, any extracted oil is bad news. Let me explain why. Take a breath. Let's continue. Think about this. If I take a basin of water and I pour oil in it, and then I take hot water, warm water, and then I take a plate and I go dip out. out what would my plate be like? Oily. It'll have a, if you run your finger along it, you'll have a film of oil on it. Isn't that right? Now, if you take free fat, and you put it into your stomach, that's hot water, 37 degrees. Now you put food in it, and you dip it in, and each piece of food has a layer of oil on it. That means the enzyme, which is water-soluble in your stomach, can't get through, and it takes longer to digest, and you get fermentation. When it goes through to the, the rest of your intestine, you add bile salts, and the fat becomes miscible. It's already there, and the fat goes into the blood here in the top part of your intestines already, and it ends up in your blood, and now your blood has fat in it, And all your blood vessels, consider them plates, that you're going dip, 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 dip dip in the fat. And now your blood vessels contain all these and the exchange of oxygen is slowed down. That means you're getting less oxygen to your brain. That is why if you have a fatty meal, very soon thereafter you go, and you fall asleep. Isn't that right? Whereas if you had no free fat in your diet, it would first have to be digested. It would be released as free fat lower in the intestine. It would be absorbed way low down and not go straight into the normal bloodstream. It would first go into the portal system, first go to the liver. The liver would work with it like a factory, take it out and pass clean blood to your heart and you would never have that. So if you had a whole food diet, you would stay awake. And you come to your class and your students are all asleep. It's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. So switch to margarine. Women who eat four or more teaspoonfuls of margarine a day have a 66% greater risk of heart disease than women who have margarine less than once a month. Now why is that? The trans fatty acid levels in the margarine seems to be the problem. So, you don't want trans fats. Trans fats are not a food, and they cause cardiovascular disease. And the polyunsaturates, they cause cancer. Margarine is not a good idea. Not a good idea. So, what do you replace it with? There's another lecture coming up on that. Mopping up free radicals, we've already discussed it. So what you want in your diet, because we're going to face these hazards in the world, is you want lots of fruits and vegetables and natural foods such as these in your diet to help you cope with that situation as we discussed it in the previous lecture. All of these will help you mop up those free radicals. And it's very important that you don't just look at them, you actually eat them. Now I want to speak about one had real hazard in the world today. I just want to make it quite brief. And that is additives. Here you have another choice. So we've seen your health, your choice. You can choose the oil that you want to buy. You don't have to give it up. You just choose the one that's going to be best for you. You can eat it in the whole form or you could eat it in the extracted form. There are many, many things that you can do. But you can also look at what they put in the food, the additives. Today, there are about 8,000 additives listed by the World Health Organization. The number is increasing dramatically. Anything from anti-caking agents, anti-foaming agents, dyes, bleaches, bulking agents, emulsifiers, stabilizers, firming agents, flavorants, gelling agents, preservatives, the list is just endless. And there are many food intolerances that people have. You have non-immunological toxic effects, and then you have immediate ones, delayed ones, psychological effects, physiological effects. 10 to 20% of the population is asthmatic. Much of this can be alleviated just by getting rid of the additives, like sulfate oxidase deficiency leads to asthma. Dairy products is another one we'll be dealing with later. Now, the food additives are used as all of these uh, components for colorants, etc. Some of them are used during processing, like uh, foaming agents, anti-foaming agents, uh, pH control agents, and all of those. And some are used in the final product, like your antioxidants, your colors, your pH control agents, your texturizers to keep things crispy, etc. And these are some of the behavioral reactions. Migraine, hyperkinesis, that's hyperactivity, or super sluggishness, uh, photophobia, depression, irrational behavior, all of these paranoid ideas, even transient blindness, and then all of these nerve disorders, insomnia, fatigue, Nervous tics, all of those can be attributed to food additives. Sweeteners are one of the worst ones to watch. They're used in place of sugar, as you know. Saccharin is a very common one. It's implicated in abnormal cardiac rhythm, causes itching, nausea, swelling, blistering. It's a mutagen. It's listed as a carcinogen and banned in some countries. Some countries don't ban it. I don't know whether, I don't think the United States actually bans it. It's one of the countries where you can get it. So, saccharine is not one that we should take. But one that is probably most rampant in the world today is aspartame. It is used everywhere. It's used in power drinks, it's used in sport drinks, it's used in sweets, it's used so widely. That it's scary. You'd have to watch where it is used. Aspartame is the technical name of a brand name such as NutraSweet, Equal Spoonful, Equal Measure, all of those. And it accounts for about 75% of adverse reactions in the United States, for example. There are some 90 symptoms associated with it headaches, migraine, dizziness, seizures. Nausea, numbness, muscle spasm, weight gain, rashes, depression, fatigue, irritability, tachycardia, fast heart rhythm, insomnia, lack of sleep, vision problems, hearing loss, heart palpitation, breathing difficulties, anxiety attacks, slurred speech, loss of taste, tinnitus, vertigo, memory loss, joint pain. I mean, the list is just endless. That's definitely one to avoid. Now, what does it do? This is what can be triggered by aspartame. So brain tumors can be triggered by it, multiple sclerosis, if you have it latently, it can be triggered, epilepsy, chronic fatigue syndrome, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. doesn't cause it, it just exacerbates it. Mental retardation, lymphoma, birth defects, oh, terrible stuff. Now what is it made of? Three chemicals. Aspartic acid, phenylalanine, and methanol. Two of them are amino acids. So there's two amino acids. So people will tell you aspartame is a natural product. It's made of amino acids. In fact, free amino acids are sweet. And so most amino acids will act as sweeteners. And uh, phenylalanine is probably one of the sweetest. So if you take that freely, it's sweet to the taste. Aspartic acid is the other one that is sweet to the taste. And then also contains methanol. Now, aspartic acid, as you see, is an amino acid taken in its free form. It significantly raises blood levels of aspartate and glutamate. Now, the same you will find in monosodium glutamate, MSG, that you find in Chinese food a lot. And aspartate and glutamate are what we call excitotoxins. Now, people will say, no, hang on a second. It's just an amino acid. But think about this. No animal in the world, no creature in the world ever, ever eats free amino acids. You just don't do it. How do you get your amino acids? You eat a protein. And the protein is not sweet when you chew it. The protein goes into your stomach and there it is cleaved into blocks by the enzyme pepsin. And then it goes through to the duodenum and there it is cleaved by another protein called trypsin into smaller pieces. And then it goes further down in the intestine and then the the amino acids are cleaved off one by one by what we call exopeptidases, enzymes that cut them off piece by piece. So the only place in your normal life, where you ever have free amino acids, is way down in the bottom of your intestine. Now, where does that go to? It goes just like that fat. Where does it go to? It goes to the liver. And the liver is a factory. It is your food factory. And it builds everything in into your type of protein that you need, and then transports it to wherever it has to go. So, you never have excesses of those free amino acids free in your blood. Whereas if you take them free like that, they go straight into your bloodstream and they end up in the brain. Where they shouldn't be, they should first be regulated by the liver, they go straight to the brain and they act as excitotoxins. So your kids go berserk and the adults go depressed. Now, what does it do? Excessive levels of phenylalanine, in the brain, can cause the levels of serotonin in the brain to decrease. Now, what's serotonin? Serotonin is a neurotransmitter. Now, schizophrenics have low levels of serotonin, and they go berserk. They're dangerous. They can kill you. They are out of control. So they're put into asylums. And then a psychiatrist comes along, and he gives him medication to what? raise his serotonin levels and then he's quite normal. You can talk to him. There's no problem. There's no problem with that person. And as soon as he's off the medication, down goes the serotonin levels and he becomes aggressive. So now imagine this. We are making our society aggressive by giving them excessive levels of phenylalanine. Kids that drink these power drinks and that drink these sports drinks have high levels of this compound and that's what happens. And then they become highly aggressive. And by the way, the antioxidant that they put on snack foods, like chips, butylated hydroxy toluene butylated hydroxyinosol will do exactly the same thing. Lower the levels of serotonin. What do our kids eat in break? They eat these snack foods and they're hyperactive and they're aggressive and they kick each other to pieces. Methanol, what does that do? That's the other compound in it. The recommended limit of consumption is 7.8 milligrams per day. Now, one liter—that's a quart, approximately—of aspartame sweetened beverage contains 56 milligrams per met- of methanol. Take, take, take a look there. 7.8 is maximum recommended. One liter, one not one quart, will contain 56 milligrams. So, heavy users of aspartame consume as much as 250 milligrams of methanol per day or 32 times the recommended amount. Wow. That is bad news. And that will cause problems and diseases like you cannot believe. So aspartame can be found, for example, in, infant brec- in instant breakfast foods, breath mints. Read them, those little ones, very often. Those nice cute ones. Watch them. Cereals, sugar-free gum, cocoa mixes, coffee beverages, frozen desserts, gelatin desserts, juice beverages, laxatives, multivitamins, milk drinks, pharmaceuticals, supplements, shake mixes, soft drinks, tabletop sweeteners, tea, beverages. It's everywhere. Wine coolers, yoghurt. They put the stuff into everything. I think they're on an agenda to destroy society. I think that's what they want to do. By the way, the, le- the the level of brain tumors in areas where aspartame was introduced is far higher than in places where it's not introduced. So it's even carcinogenic. MSG will do very much the same thing. General weaknesses, palpitations, headaches, cold, sweating, shuddering, especially in children. So what am I basically telling you? By the way, if you take these sweeteners that consist of amino acids, this is what happens. Imagine this. You put this into your mouth and you pick up sweet. Your tongue tells you sweet. Now there's a nervous connection between your tongue and your brain or else you wouldn't know that it's sweet, right? But there's also a nerve that attaches to your brain and the brain says, sweet, ah, something's on the way. What is it? Sugar. And it sends an impulse down to the pancreas And tells the pancreas, sugar on the way. And the pancreas says, brain says, sugar on the way. (coughs) Starts producing insulin. And then, after a while, no sugar comes. All you have is amino acid coming down. And the pancreas says, hello, what's going on here? Where's the sugar? The brain says, I know it's coming. I tasted it. Are you calling me a liar? Of course not. And so this communication goes on, and the pancreas responds every time to the brain and produces insulin, and then nothing happens. And guess what happens? It's just like a kid that you tell something too often. What do they do? They filter it out and they don't even hear you anymore. And so the pancreas stops reacting. And now you have a big something sweet and the brain says, sugar on the way, and the pancreas says, Pfft. and suddenly the sugar's in the blood, and then what you have? You have a crisis. You have too little influ- insulin production. So, sweeteners, bad news. If you want to make something sweet, then uh, use dates, for example, or uh, natural products like that. So, Headaches, sweating, seizures, shuddering fits, all of these. The antioxidants we've already spoken about. Butylated hydroxytoluene, butylated hydroxy anisol, Those are the ones that they put onto all the snack foods. They also lower the serotonin levels by as much as 40%. That's like a schizophrenic. You're turning your kids into schizophrenics. Colorants cause hyperactivity, aggressiveness, allergic reactions, anaphylactic shock. Tartrazine is particularly bad. Preservatives, the sulfites that they use, they cause asthma attacks, for example. It's also a mutagen. So if you buy something that has been sulfur-treated, then what you do is you soak it. Say dried fruit. Just soak it, throw the water off, and then you don't have that product on there anymore. Sodium benzoate is a very common preservative in most dairy products. All margarines have it just about. It's very similar to tartrazine, so it's a hyperkinetic. You want to avoid those. The nitrates are carcinogenic. The nitrites that they put into cold meats and cheeses, but we'll cure you of that, so that's no product, problem. So when you're reading these bottles, it's a nightmare. Going shopping in a supermarket has, for me, become a nightmare. And I stand in front of the racks, and I read the labels. And I put this product down. Anything, peanut butter. You want to go and buy peanut butter? You read the labels. And I call the supermarket manager. My wife freaks. She runs away. And I say, excuse me, sir, I'm looking for peanut butter, and I can't seem to find it. And he says, but sir, there it is, right in front of you. I said, no, sir, not toxic waste, peanut butter. (laughs) Let me show you. And then I give him the list of the ingredients and I tell him what each of them does. And I say, you know, don't you have peanut butter? You know, this and this and this and this brand don't have those things on it. Why is it that you only have these brands on your shelf? couldn't you cater for people that want food and not toxic waste, please? And if enough people do that, eventually you have food on the shelves. So pressure, 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 pressure. And uh, read. Learn to read the labels. And start switching to these types of foods. And I know there are problems there too with sprays and all of that. We'll be dealing with that as we go along. But this is health food that prevents most of those problems. So basically, your health your choice. Start reading your labels. Don't pick the brands that have the products. Choose the ones that don't. For example, simple thing. If you want to buy uh, ketchup, the one contains vinegar as an agent to make it sour. The other one contains citric acid. And uh, we have both brands in my country, the one with citric acid and the one with vinegar. Now, vinegar is an end product of fermentation. In fact, bacteria will go no further in the fermentation than vinegar. There it stops. That means we don't handle vinegar very well. We don't have an enzyme that breaks vinegar down in the digestive tract already. So it goes into the bloodstream and is an acidifier. Citric acid is what you find in nature. You don't find vinegar naturally, except if something has fermented. So the natural sour in citrus, for example, is citric acid. Lemon juice is highly sour, but it is a compound that you break down readily. So if you can choose, choose the one, that has citric acid and not the one that has vinegar in it, acetic acid. And if they don't have one, phone the company and say, excuse me, why do you put this and that and that in your product when this and this and this is better? And if you do that long enough, eventually there'll be a brand that has citric acid. And uh, look for it. Choose the better ones and make sure that they're on the shelves and start putting pressure on the people out there to say that the consumer is more important than the supplier and your health, your choice. Thank you. If this episode impacted you please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor supported ministry to help us keep producing content like this visit AmazingDiscoveries.org As always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.